Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. Thursday, October the 10th, is apparently World Porridge Day. And the next day, the 11th, the 26th edition of the World Porridge Championships will be kicking off in the village of Carbridge in the Scottish Highlands. 26 competitors from Scotland and beyond, well beyond, will be competing to win the coveted Golden Spurtle. What's a spurtle? I'll explain that later. But how do I know all this? Because Laura Valley, a regular listener to Eat This Podcast, sent me a copy of her research paper, Porridge Renaissance and the Communities of Ingestion. Laura is currently studying for a PhD at the Bread Lab in Washington State. But in 2016, she helped found what became a porridge cafe in her hometown of Tartu in Estonia. It was rather random um, because the cafe opened up primarily as a coffee roastery and um, due to the limitations of the um, space we had, we, need to ha we needed to have a very simple menu. Um, and initially I proposed several things to be on the menu and porridge was amongst one of them. Further to that, we also served sandwiches, um, not a wide selection though, um, yogurts and granola, this kind of typical um, coffee shop fare. But after the first month, I think, um, the owner said that we can't really have that many items on the menu. We need to um, decide what we're going to focus on. Let's do one thing, but try to do it as well as possible. And um, I just proposed another list of items and they thought porridge was the most intriguing of them. I mean, I didn't invent anything in this regard. Porridge, obviously, um, has been prepared for thousands of years. And um, in Europe, there are quite many porridge cafes at the moment, too, and also in the States. So it seems to be a global trend. So I was uh, aware of it, but it wasn't my intention to have a porridge cafe in Estonia. I just liked what they were doing with porridge. I looked on Google Ngrams to trace the, the word. And then there's mm. been, you know, it's a steady more or less steady upward trend um, mm -hmm. in people looking for, for the word porridge. So, and it's become a joke of, you know, hipster porridge and all the rest of it. So how, yeah. how do you account for the rise of porridge? Um, well, it does have a long history. Um, so there is something about its essence in the sense that it is made from grains that are nutritious and they are easy to store. Um, and um, turning them into porridge is the best way of making the en energy that is within the grains available for the eater. Um, and it seems to me that there is a kind of a longing for those kinds of childhood foods or comforting foods. Porridge is one of them for sure. Kind of you know that it's a safe choice in the sense that it's nutritious and it's good for you and it's healthy, whatever that category might entail. Yeah, I see what you're getting at, but that doesn't that doesn't kind of make it trendy. I mean, I know there've been there've been lots of other foods that have gone down the same road. Macaroni cheese mm -hmm. is one, you know, but but what makes it trendy? Well, um, I think we're a lot about the visual these days. Um, so one of its good characteristics is that it's um, easily made Instagrammable because porridge really is just a canvas. I mean, the porridge bit itself is almost irrelevant because these days it seems to be a lot about the toppings, which can be colorful, attribute to the texture, 
um, feed into the seasonality aspect, um, and they're really pretty to look at. Yeah, I, I suppose that's right. But what? How do you move something from? I mean, to me, an English person, porridge <laughs> porridge is something you eat for breakfast. I I like it with butter and brown sugar or treacles even better how do you move from that to a restaurant food mm, well one aspect might be doing it extremely well so um, some chefs are known for mastering the simplicity so that it, the simple porridge can also be the best possible that you could ever eat anywhere um, so maybe that's that's one way or using really high quality ingredients um, these days we think more about the origin of the produce, where we get it from. You've got a great quote. You say that something you say that Karl Marx says that the taste of porridge tells you nothing about the person who grew the oats, mm -hmm. but it, mm -hmm. but it does. Oh, it for sure does. I do think that Marx was wrong in saying that. Um, and now it is a lot about um, the the taste of, of the ingredients that we use and the history of those and emphasizing. Um, so we do not serve anonymous food anymore, but it's very much you know, uh, labeling what, what we're offering to people, where it comes from, who has made the effort to grow it and so on. Um, I'm still kind of puzzled because porridge is so easy to make at home. I mean, not even not even counting microwavable porridge. I'm I'm wondering what makes it worth going out and paying money for. Uh, well, for instance, the customers that we had um, at the cafe uh, I was working in in Estonia had uh, the similar skepticism in the beginning, um, but then quite a few of them started coming back because they said that you know I've tried, but my porridge at home never tastes as good as it does here. <laughs> so maybe it is solely the fact that someone else is making it for you. I mean, I remember moving to England myself from my university years, and uh, the porridge didn't taste as good as. <laughs> when my mother made it at home. Um, so there might be this element of nostalgia or just the fact that someone else is taking care for you. And we kept uh, on changing the porridge menu so people could discover some new things at all times. And another thing is that for many people, porridge is quite strictly defined. So it might be synonymous with oats or in some countries with buckwheat or millet or whatnot. But when you have a porridge cafe, then you can serve all of the grains and many more and pseudo grains. Um, so there's this diversity, perhaps that's attractive. Well, that's that's the next thing, actually, I wanted to get on to, which is what what is porridge? What makes something porridge? Mm, well, that's something I've been struggling with for a long time particularly with regards to, to working at the cafe and then trying to brand whatever we're doing or just explain it to people. And sometimes you have very confused customers. Is this really porridge that you're serving? So initially I was very loose in my definition and I su just suggested that it's any kind of food that could be served in the bowl. But that's obviously not very helpful because you can put anything into the bowl. <laughs> I guess initially it was about grains and water, but also pseudograins such as buckwheat, right? Mm -hmm. So you encounter problems uh, with any definition that you try to give. Is is risotto porridge? 
I'd say so. We we served risotto. I know Greg in Copenhagen serves uh, risotto as porridge, and it seems to fit the very simple definition of grains and water that I used for making it. So you don't even know uh, need to boil it. It's just about the contact between the liquid and the grains. Mm. How about Indian style tarka dal or you know one of the other dals? Is that a porridge? Uh, well, I definitely um, view them as porridge, yeah. And and I read somebody describing mashed potato as porridge. Um, yeah, that's that's very popular in Estonia, and uh, we definitely use the word porridge. Porridge in Estonian is putar, and um, you use the same word to um, describe mashed potatoes. So it's uh, potato porridge. So it's kind of it's kind of an amalgamation of of how you cook it and the texture you end up with. Yes, I think so, this kind of mushiness. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, I mean, this is part, I, I don't know whether you had a branding image with that, because again, to an English person, porridge is, well, first of all, it's slang for being in prison, doing porridge, because they feed you porridge yes. in prison. Um, and also it has this kind of slightly difficult, association with it i mean you've got you know porridge and gruel and mush and you yeah. know all of that i i find it intriguing that that it's become something desirable yeah i completely agree because many people have negative memories it's also a hospital food uh, it can be served in schools and quite badly prepared I know many people associated with the um, Soviet army in Estonia, and it's very hard to overcome those kinds of prejudices. And I think it takes a very good bowl of porridge to rectify that. I didn't know um, un until I read what you'd written that there was even a world championship of porridge making in, in Scotland, obviously. I mean, where else, <laughs> where yeah. else would it be? Um, <laughs> but you took part in that making an oat porridge or did you make one of your specialities what did you do tell me about that so yeah that happens every year in october um, and last year was the 25th time it took place they really came to the competition from all over the globe there was one person from russia and one representing the states and uh, obviously several european countries were there too and um, swedes tend to do very well in that competition um, and actually the competition has two rounds the traditional porridge uh, which is uh, very simple. It uh, must only contain um, oats. Um, usually, I think people use steel-cut oats and water. And they, the most traditional recipes don't even use any salt. Oh, um, and, um, yeah, <laughs> that was what my reaction was. Um, and then the other round is completely the opposite, where you can go absolutely crazy with your porridge. And last year, the winner of that actually prepared a kind of porridge tapas, so where you couldn't actually even see porridge. I think it just <laughs> used oats in its many forms. So it's interesting. There's this complete contrast between those two, which I found fascinating. 
And I mean, the judges are primarily from Scotland, I think. So they also have a, an idea of what a porridge is supposed to be like and taste like. Um, and I went with the whole groats um, or um, yeah, oat groats that weren't uh, cut into pieces. And actually the judges were doubting whether you could actually make this traditional porridge from the whole groats at all or not. So it was uh, a source of debate there. I'm going to butt in here with something else that seems to be a topic of debate, although I really don't understand why. It's about the spurtle. I did promise I'd come back to it. In case you don't know, a spurtle is the traditional porridge stirring tool. It's made of wood and it closely resembles a stick. It's basically a wooden cylinder, not much thicker than a fat finger, and about as long as a wooden spoon. Which rather obviously raises the question, why a spurtle and not a spoon? Self-appointed experts will tell you that it is designed to eradicate the lumps that can form when cooking, but they don't say how that works. They also say that the smaller surface area of a spurtle, compared to a spoon, prevents the porridge sticking to it. And that's puzzling too. I mean, in total, less porridge is going to stick to a cylinder than to a spoon. But I'm willing to bet it sticks just as readily. In desperation, I consulted Len Fisher, a famous food physicist, to ask whether a cylindrical spurtle would be better at breaking up lumps than an ordinary spoon. He'd done a detailed study of Duncan Hilditch's porridge-making method, and Hilditch was a three-time winner of the Golden Spurtle. Len told me that what seems to matter most is the sheer stress of the stirrer on the porridge. A spurtle moving at about 70 centimeters a second, Duncan's technique, and a paddle-shaped stirrer moving at about 15 centimeters a second, which is how Len does it, they both result in roughly the same shear stress and equally unlumpy porridge. According to Len, whatever tool you use, you want to stir at a speed that will separate individual gelatinized flakes, but not break them up. I don't think it makes much difference whether you use a spurtle or a spatula or a spoon. But anyway, before I interrupted, Laura was talking about Scandinavian porridge. So let's pursue that. Yeah, it does seem to fit into the um, trendiness of Nordic foods in general. Um, so it seems a logical extension of that. And um, Magnus Nielsen, in one of his books, talks about porridges in great detail and provides many recipes and also says that it's a very universal kind of food group because it can be very easy to prepare. It can be simple and it can be thought of as a poverty food because it really entails only the very basic ingredients, but it can also be... Um, made very festive by using richer ingredients and adding adding things. It's interesting the the, the question of being of it being universal because you've got it very mm -hmm. tightly associated with Scotland, and yet mm -hmm. I haven't seen any of the kind of appropriation cultural appropriation arguments that you see about um, I don't know um, white people cooking African American mm -hmm. food. 
Nobody seems to be complaining about Estonians appropriating Scottish porridge. Yeah, exactly. Um, apart from the competition, perhaps, I think there they were quite protective about this proper traditional porridge, which was um, how it's prepared in Scotland. Yeah, but, but generally there's no... You know, you you don't have people saying it's an outrage. You you, you know what I'm getting at. That that yeah yeah, you know. I completely agree, and that's why I thought it might be a nice kind of a community food because people are kind of used to eating porridge, but oftentimes they can be pleasantly surprised by what what else the category of porridge can entail in different countries. Yeah, as you rightly said, rather than protecting it or saying that no, this is no porridge or this is not really how you should be making porridge. So just going back to your your cafe in Estonia, what you said was that people sort of got used to the idea and then they become kind of regulars. How do you maintain a balance between this is the porridge I had yesterday and that I had last week and that I had a month ago and I really like this porridge, how do you maintain a balance between that sort of familiarity and the kind of new porridges that you, you, you might be interested in serving? We just went completely for the latter route. So we do, or now I should say they do, new porridges every day. Uh, there's a sweet porridge uh, for the morning breakfast and uh, then at noon a savoury porridge is being served. It has been operating for three years now. And there actually hasn't been repetition. But I mean, it's dubitable because obviously we use the same kinds of ingredients, right? For instance, when in summertime, strawberries come into season, we definitely use them. And I mean, we use the same kinds of grains and pseudograins over the year. But the combinations are always just somewhat different. You said that one of the reasons for going to porridge was slimming down the menu and not offering quite so many different things. So how many porridges are there on the menu on any one day? Is it just one sweet and one savoury? Precisely. So we offer no choice. And uh, I mean, I personally, I'm very indecisive and I actually very much cherish the places that have done this election for me. So I can just go there and eat whatever is, is there on the menu. I don't have to read through a list of things and uh, fear that I'm missing out on the best items on the menu. But I just have what is prepared that day. But you have to trust the person preparing it. Exactly. And that feeds into the idea of building a community through serving food. What, what, what do you mean by that? Can you expand on that? For me, the question of trust is very important. And I think it was also important for our customers that you go to the cafe um, you know, one week, then the other week, and what you are being served pleases you or you find tasty. And then you have trust in what the people in the place are doing and you don't doubt their choices anymore. And then you don't need the fixed menu because a fixed menu can also be a way of controlling the quality. That's one of the biggest crit criticisms, I think, uh, of, of um, new places being opened up, at least in Estonia. So very often people running the um, establishments are not able to maintain this uh, quality that they have. And uh, part of it is to do with serving the same food. So you go there one day, you have it, have the dish, and then you go another day and you want to have the same dish, but it isn't the same anymore. And it's not necessarily 
worse, I think, but it's just different. Mm. But uh, then you'll feel that you know, you're kind of being let down or you can't really trust those people. Whereas it's easier when you serve different kinds of things anyway. So if you've just got one porridge on the menu and it's different every day, are there regulars who come in every day or three or four times a week and just say, give me the yeah, porridge? Yeah. Yes, and they don't, they don't even ask what's on the menu. They just say that, say that they want it, regardless of what we are offering. So I think that's a sign of great trust. Laura Valley, porridge maker and PhD student at the Bread Lab in Washington State. And back for just a moment to Spurtles. In the course of doing my research, I came across a woodturner who offers a myrtle spurtle. If I were going to use one, that's the one I'd choose. But my absolute favorite porridge is made with almost no stirring, just sitting overnight in the cooler oven of an agar with a few fresh flakes stirred in just before eating for chewiness. I'll put some links to porridgey stuff on the website at eatthispodcast.com. But that's all for this episode. If you enjoyed it, why not recommend Eat This Podcast to a friend? or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My thanks to everybody who supports the show with a donation. And for now, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye, and thanks for listening.